Um, I don't know if you guys obviously have paid attention to the things that are happening in the news around us, with it, whether it be bombs or the things that have happened in Louisville with the shooting of the two African Americans in the in the uh, Kroger or yesterday with, with the shooting that happened in the synagogue and um, we we kind of have the feeling around here that church shouldn't be an escape from reality but church should be the lens through which we come to see reality and see hope and so we don't want to ignore those things and just go on and sing happy songs and pretend like that's just reality because the scriptures say weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. And so we want to do that today. We want to, to allow room for that lament um, and to, to say unequivocally, number one, that we renounce the demonic powers of white supremacy and of violence and of racism in this country. Absolutely denounce it. It is, it is from the devil himself. And we do not abide that, and we stand firmly against that as God's people because we believe that when Jesus died, he did not just reconcile us to God. Ephesians 2 said he tore down the walls of hostility between us. And so the things that divide us, Jesus tore that down. And so anything that's been built up between us, we put that up. But as God's people, our job is to get about the business of tearing that wall down. Amen? So we, we come here and we lament today, but we do so as hope because we are the, the soldiers of love in this, in this world that go and we will stand in the gap and we will not be the ones that divide and walk into tribalism. We will be the ones who tear these walls down. And so I want to pray into that before we even go any further and just allow this moment to be a moment where we say, we, we can just lament, but also we say, God, we have hope. We have hope in this. So, Father, we come today grieving the loss of two brothers and sisters in Louisville and brothers and sisters in Pittsburgh and the, the violence and the hatred that has become not the exception but the norm in this country. And today we come to you asking that your presence would go and comfort Comfort the families of those who've been lost, who are spending the day in church today knowing that they lost someone, or the day after they were in a synagogue spending the Sabbath losing someone. We, we know that's not your kingdom. When we look at that and we say that's not the way the world is supposed to be, you look at the same thing and you say the very same thing. This is not the way it's supposed to be. So God... We pray that you are present in our grief, but we also pray that you are present in sending us as the hands and feet of love for our enemies, the hands and feet of justice in this world. God, that we would not allow the forces of evil to drive us to a place of fear, but then in the face of fear, we let perfect love lead the way. We will not back down from love for God, love for neighbor, and love for our enemy. Because Jesus, that's who you've made us to be. So empower us as we mourn to comfort those around us. And in these trying times, God, to be a rock that people can cling to. Thank you for being with us, even in our grief. We pray this in your name. Amen.
Well, welcome. My name is Justin. If it's your first time here, we're really, really glad you're here. Um, if you've been here a couple weeks in a row, every week's kind of surprising. Last week, we did tables downstairs. We were talking about community, and this week, we get these fancy chairs that I know if you're like me, I was really scared to sit on because I thought I was going to rip it, but they are doing all right. So the Lyric had a 70th anniversary celebration, so we have all this fancy set up with us today. We're really excited and love our partnership with the Lyric as well. So this past Sunday night after church, uh, I, was, I had the honor of, of marrying a couple, and I got to take my wife with me. I try to take my wife to all the weddings I get to do, and there's a couple different reasons for this. Number one is because she's a great wedding date. Number two is because my wife will tell me if I look stupid. Um, or if like, cause if my tie is crooked or if anything's happening like that, if I miss the spot shaving my head, she will be sure to tell me, um, or if my pants are unzipped, that's been a real problem at weddings and funerals for me. Unfortunately, over the years, I forget to zip up my pants, especially at funerals. It's awful. And so I need my wife. I need you people around me to tell me when these things happen. I checked many times today because I was nervous about it being during this story. But, but I need my wife around because my wife is not the type of person that will walk by. She will tell me. Um, 13 almost years into this marriage, she, I know she is getting more blunt and more blunt and she just doesn't care anymore. Um, and, and that's cool. I like that. And, and so uh, I don't know if you have a friend like that. Anybody have a friend like that that just is just blunt? How many of you are that friend? Well, we have a few of you here today. Well, thank you. Um, but I, I was thinking about this this week because we're moving into a study of James. And James, when you read through the Old Testament, um, most of it's written by Paul. And Paul is, is direct, and he's, he's pretty blunt too sometimes, but he's also very theological and, 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 and kind of more of a poetic writer. But when you get to James, James is that blunt friend that just says, here's what I'm telling you right now. And he does not pull any punches. He is the kind of guy that will tell you straight away, this is how it is. And so to, to give you a quick overview, James was written sometime between 42 and 62 AD, um, which makes it a very early letter. It was written to um, uh, some Jewish Christians who were experiencing um, hardship and persecution. They were kind of stuck in a hard place. James, by the way, is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, and so if there's any argument for Jesus's salve, that Jesus is the Messiah, if you can get your brother to believe you're the Messiah, that's a pretty big deal. My brother would never believe I'm the Messiah. So there must have been something going on there. So James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's a leader in the early Jerusalem church. And he's writing to them in a time of real struggle because as Jewish believers in Jerusalem, they were stuck between being outcast in their religious society, but also outcast in a secular society in Rome. They did not fit anywhere, and so they experienced a lot of life that was hard. And they were persecuted. And because of these hardships and these difficulties, it's hard for us to understand sometimes as we read the scriptures what they were facing in the 21st century. Because we as American Christians, we don't really go through any hardship. Like, not, not you know, some of the stuff we call persecution these days is absurd. That, what, like, that's not actually persecution. These people actually faced real hardships because of their faith. And so James is writing this as an encouragement 
encouragement to them in the midst of their sufferings. And if there's one statement that kind of sum up all of what James is saying in this letter, it's this. It's don't see your faith through the lens of your circumstances. See your circumstances through the lens of your faith. I want to say that again because that's huge. Don't see your faith through the lens of your circumstances, through what's happening, but instead see your circumstances through the lens of your faith. And that's why, just as we were reading earlier, James skips the flowery introductions. He doesn't say, I'm praying for you and I love you. He just gets right into it. So let's listen to what James is speaking to us, his blunt encouragement. He says this. He says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Simple enough, right, everybody? Be joyful in your hardships. Thank you, James, for that very blunt and somewhat hard to understand encouragement. I know this week when I was taking our minivan, the Swagger Wagon, to the, uh, the shop two times in one week, I, every time I dropped it off there, I had such joy. It was a joyous experience as, as that rattling sound started to get really, really loud as I barely got it to the actual shop and, and school drop-off. I had to do it beforehand. So you know when you drop off your, your kids at school and your, your car sounds and looks horrible and you're really embarrassed and you're trying not to... I was doing that because it was so embarrassing to, to see how loud my car was and all the parents were just like, whoa, and finally dropped it off. Through all this, I was so joyous. I mean, just singing praises to God. No, of course I wasn't. And that's just a van, man. I mean, that's just stuff that happens to us every day, struggles and hardships. And I know in this room right now, there are actual, real, hard struggles that many of us are facing. Things like cancer, things like divorce and lost jobs and uncertainty, death, pain. That's in our own lives. And that's not even looking at what's happening on the news. There's real pain. And into that, James says, consider it joy. You know, we have a habit of looking at our faith and our lives and, and, and in some form of the fashion thinking, I thought it would get easier. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought that, that when you come to faith, there was this moment where, you know, my, my marriage will get easier, my kids will behave more, my circumstances, I'll get the best job, I'll, I'll make lots of money. And then the more you journey into this, this faith in Jesus, it just isn't getting any easier. In fact, in some ways, it may even seem like it's, it's getting harder. And there are versions of Christianity that are espoused in this country that actually give you that picture, like if you have enough faith that you will have a wonderful, successful life. And there, that sounds really good. There's only one problem with that view, and that is the Bible. Um, that's not in the Bible. In fact, there's nothing in the New Testament that would give any picture that if you follow God and, and, and you are faithful, that your, all your wildest dreams will come true. That's just not in there. Instead, James pulls us to this place. He talks about doubt. And I thought that was kind of weird that why would he talk about doubt after saying this? It's because when we suffer hardships, we start to doubt God, don't we? 
We start to wonder, where are you in this? I get angry with God. I start to see my faith through my circumstances and thinking, man, maybe this isn't true because all these bad things are happening to me. But, but James wants us to say, no, I'm not going to see it that way. I'm going to see my circumstances through the lens of my faith. I'm going to look for what is unseen and not what is seen. And I need to do that by understanding how I shift my perspective. Perspective is powerful, isn't it? Perspective is the game changer in our lives. A recent study by, by an economist at Utrecht University, which I know you all have some sweatshirts from there, it's in the Netherlands, they found out, this is fascinating, that Olympic silver medalists, you see a picture here, you can see the silver, she's looking not too happy right there, silver medalists on average live two years less than both gold medal winners and bronze medal winners. And what they found was is that over the years that the continual process of stress hormones over a long period of time of thinking what might have been causes their body to start breaking down sooner. And so silver medalists die before the, the gold and the bronze. But why the bronze? It's because the bronze are just happy they got a medal. It's amazing, the perspective, the power of perspective, even in something as monumental as winning a medal, if we don't have the right perspective, everything can be ruined. Some of the interviews I was reading it are, are horrifying, but these silver medalists that say, there's not a moment, not a day goes by that I do not think about how disappointed I am. It's amazing. So when we face these trials, how can we do what James is talking about and actually see them from a place of joy. Well, we need to take a closer look at this. Look back at verse 3 here with me. He says, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So what does it mean that God is testing our faith? That seems to me to be a bit harsh, like God is up there in heaven, and if we fail, he's giving us the F, and then we kind of get kicked out, and he holds us at a distance. And, and, you know, if we have any doubts, he's, he's going to give us, you know, like a D or a, maybe a C minus. And if that's what that passage means when God is testing us, then that is depressing. But luckily, that's not what the actual passage means, that God's testing us like we're passing and failing. That word there for testing is a really important word in the Greek. It's not found very often at all in the New Testament. It's dokimian, and it's a rare word because it's only used, I believe, three times in the entire Old and New Testament in the Greek. And it's only used in the context of, of refining metals or gold. And what it means, as you see here on the screen, is that when God is testing you, he's doing more than giving you a passing and failing grade. That's the wrong mindset to understand testing. What God is actually doing is he is removing the impurities and the elements outside of ourselves, not taking away from us, not making us less of who we are, but making us more of who we are making us more of who we are. You see, gold, when it's refined, is heated up as high as it can because if there's any other metals or any other impurities, as it melts, those impurities go away and it becomes more purely what it is always meant 
to be. When it says that God is testing you, God is making you more of yourself. And amazingly, there's a form of the same encouragement in three different passages by three different writers in the New Testament. In, in, in writing, writing in Peter and by Paul and by James. In Romans 5, written by Paul, it says, And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that the affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces Hope, And then again in 1 Peter 1, it says almost the same thing. It says, you rejoice in this, even though that now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials so that the proven character of your faith made more valuable than gold, which through, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What are these writers saying in, in chorus to this? This must be important if three different writers in the New Testament almost make the exact same statement. It's that we need to understand that God is up to something in our sufferings. He is up to something in our trials. If there's one thing we can know, it's that we may not always know the why, but we can always know the what. Why do we suffer sufferings in this world? Why do we face the sufferings and the struggles and, and the trials? Why do we look and see things like cancer and war and cruelty and hatred and white supremacy and division? I can give you the theological answer that's correct. The theological answer is it's sin. Sin has broken and, 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 and messed up this world, not only in us as individuals, but in society and structures around us, in the structures we have built. It's not just a personal thing. It is in the social systems that we have created through our sinful beings. That's the theologically correct answer. But let me tell you, when you're sitting in the, in the, the, the waiting room of, of a hospital at 3 a.m., that, that, that's not cutting it. You ever gone into a waiting room in the middle of a really dark time, somebody not knowing if they're going to pull through a surgery or what's happening, and you say, walk in and say, hey, listen, all this is happening because of sin. Is that true? Yeah. But you're not saying that, are you? You see, what I found is that the most biblically faithful answer to the why of suffering in this world. I'm going to give it to you. This is free. Write this down. The most biblically faithful answer to why and suffering is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why what's happening in our country right now is happening. I have no clue. I've been in those waiting rooms in the middle of night. I've been in the conversations when people are talking about divorce. I don't have an answer. And you know what's weird is that the Bible doesn't seem really interested in answering why. It's almost as if it's telling us throughout this story that maybe why is not the question we should be asking because that question is far, far too big for us. Maybe the question, which is the question that the Bible is constantly pushing us to, is understanding what God is doing if we allow Him. I can't always know what God is doing, but I know what he is doing through it if I allow him. Romans 8.28 says we know that in all things, 
They work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And what that means is that all things mean all things. Meaning the good things and meaning the bad things, meaning our successes and meaning our failures, everything that you are facing in Christ is being worked for your good and for his glory. I can't always know why, but I do know what. If I allow him whatever trial or struggle that I am facing or will face, if I allow him, God will work it for my utmost good. It's what James, it's what Paul, it's what Peter is reminding us. In the middle of this struggle, just know that there is purpose. You are being shaped for something more than you ever thought you could be. God is not making less of you. God is making more of you. Understanding pain and our purpose is one of the characteristics of Christianity that I cling to the most in seasons like this. Tim Keller says this. He has a book on suffering. He says, Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism, that suffering is real. Contra-karma, that suffering is often unfair. But contra-secularism, that suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more, st- more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. It reminds me of the Japanese art of kintsugi. You could tell I worked on that. If you don't know what that is, for centuries in Japan, artists have taken broken pottery, broken beautiful pieces like that, and instead of throwing them out, they have created a new art form where they bring them together and they seal them back together with seams of gold. And instead of of pointing out the brokenness, it actually takes the broken places in the pottery and makes it more beautiful than it would be if it were not broken. It gives it more value. It's actually not the brokenness that takes away the value. In this piece and in all the pieces you see, it is actually the brokenness itself that reveals how deep the value there actually is in it. It is the same with us, friends. That in every broken place in our lives, in every season of brokenness, what God is doing is not trying to erase the struggle. He's actually trying to take those pieces of brokenness and bring it back together to make it far more beautiful and far more valuable than we ever could possibly imagine. Whew. That preaches. Y'all need to come on. That's good news. Loosen up. Shoo. And so James speaks into this early Christian community that is experiencing this pain. But finding their pain and their purpose, and he doesn't stop there. As the passage continues, as we were reading forward, he gives them both encouragement and challenge in some very blunt ways. But towards the end, he says this in verse 16. He says, don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. 
This is the only place in Scripture where we find that, that, that phrase, Father of lights. And, and some translations, if you have in your Bible, it'll say Father of heavenly lights because they didn't really know what to put there because it's such a strange phrase. So what's James talking about? Because to a modern audience, I, I don't understand why he would call God the Father of lights. It seems a bit odd. Well, to his predominantly Jewish audience that was hearing this, this is taking them back to the very beginning. When we hear father of lights or father of heavenly lights, what they were hearing was creation. The stars, the first thing when Adam and Eve opened their eyes and seeing this beautiful creation and feeling so, so small, but yet so valuable that these lights to, to, to the Jewish people represented their identity from the beginning that God had created them and made them valuable, that he was the father that stood above the skies, that he was the one who created and sustains everything. He didn't just make the stars. He's the one who made them move in the sky and made the seasons change. And as ancient peoples without the, the iPhone alarms and the things like that, they were far more keenly aware of how the seasons and the stars changed than we did. And when the seasons and the stars changed, the lights would go up and they would go down and you would have shifting shadows, which is the words that James uses here. The shifting shadows represents that the seasons of life continually change. They go up and they go down. There is life and there is death. There is joy and there is pain. And above it all is the father of lights. In our modern world, we have become accustomed to thinking that we are far bigger than we are. That in our world, that we are marginally in control of all the details, but the people of God in those days, especially in their sufferings, what they needed to be reminded of, that in their smallness, there is this God who made and sustains all things, that when everything feels out of control, they could trust that He is in control. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. Even as seasons change, this God does not. Seasons of suffering, seasons of joy will come later in James 4. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What your life will be for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. We don't realize it, but it is a gift to know the brevity of our own lives. It is a gift to know how small in the grand scheme of things that we are. To know that as we see and experience suffering around us, it feels like sometimes we are out of control. We feel like a vapor. It's just coming and it's going. And into that unknown, we begin to feel the modern plague of anxiety, of knowing that we have all of these things and situations that help us think that we have all of our lives together, but internally we actually know and we feel that sense that we have lost control and we don't know what to do. And James speaks this truth into us, that life is like shifting shadows that come and they go. Seasons change, life changes, but we have a God that does not 
change. That when everything around us is changing, when everything is out of control, God is not changing. God is not out of control, but he is firmly in control. James reminds us that when everything is changing, our job is to cling to the one who never changes who never moves, who never shifts like the shadows of our lives. What we know for sure today is that suffering is not an if, it's a when. It will come. We don't know when it will. You may be in it right now. We're either coming out of it, we're in it, or we're about to go into it. And so, Our choice in the midst of the struggles of our lives is to ask the question, will I see my faith through my circumstances or will I see my circumstances through my faith? As the ground moves beneath me in the culture, in my life, as relationships come and go, as there's joy, as there's pain, as there's life, as there's death, what am I clinging to? Because if it's anything other than God, it's going to start shaking too could be gone before we know it. He says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And so as the world shifts beneath us, as we cling to the one who never changes, we we close with this reminder that what we do have, it is a gift. Your friends, gift. Your family, gift your kids gift most of the time your job gift your bad job gift that food on the table you're going to eat after this gift the bed you're going to hopefully lay in tonight gift There's nothing, the breath you're breathing right now, gift. You can't point to anything in this crazy world that you cannot firmly and completely look to God, the giver, and say that is a gift. That is a gift. It's where we get the word grace from. The word grace literally in the Greek is charis. It means gift of God. Grace is gift. Everything, all is grace that we've been given. And so today, I know that in many of our lives, whether we're just watching the news and things are fine, or in our own personal journey, we feel the ground moving beneath our feet. I need to remind us today that God is not going anywhere. That we have one who is not changing. In your fears, in your doubts, in your confusion, he's not running away from you. He's running to you. He's saying, come to me. Cling to me. So, Father, as we enter into a time of response, I thank you that we could come here and not pretend like we have it all together. But that, God, we can come in our grief, in our questions, 
in our failures, in our struggles, and we can know that you are with us. And not only are you with us, God, what we learn in Jesus is that you're for us. You're for our good. So some of us here today, I just really sense we have that suffering, we have that struggle that we're facing right in our hearts and our hands right now, and we just need to give that to you and say, God, I, I surrender that to you. I trust you that you're bringing my utmost good through whatever I'm facing right now. So help us, God. Give us the courage to do that as we respond to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take